Hello and welcome to The Charter, Queen's University Belfast's social charter podcast, highlighting the positive impact our students and staff have made and continue to make on our society. My name's Morris McCartney, and in this episode I'll be talking to colleagues from two social charter signature projects, focusing on the theme of sustainability. Shortly I'll be talking to Sam McCluskey, who directs CASE, the Centre for Advanced Sustainable Energy, about some of the cutting-edge clean power technologies her colleagues are developing. But first, in an interview recorded in January 2020, Professor Greg Keefe of the School of Natural and Built Environment tells me about his CityZen project, a cross-European endeavour just coming to a close that helped cities address the challenges and opportunities of the transition to a low-carbon future. CityZen is a Framework 7 project from the EU in the smart cities area. It started in 2013 and is just coming to an end now. Um, It has 24 partners. It's looking at zero-energy neighbourhoods in cities and how to procure them. Um, My part of the project, I'm in two work packages. One is about the methodology, how to get people to change their behaviour, to enter a more sustainable way of living. And the second one is um, one looking at um, how to get people to engage in a more sophisticated way with the problem. We do that through the Citizen Roadshow. And the Roadshow is a really interesting part of the the, um, Citizen project. It involves five academics from around Europe getting together um, to go and visit neighbourhoods who invite us for a week and during that week we develop really radical solutions and pathways to get those neighbourhoods to become zero carbon. What sort of cities have you... I know you did some work in Belfast, but there are some other European ones. Maybe we'll come back to Belfast in a minute. Yeah, um, well, we've been to um, Dubrovnik, Seville, Roslera in Belgium, Mm -hmm. Preston in England, Um, we've been to Izmir... We've been um, also to Amsterdam, Grenoble, and other places. Amsterdam and, and Grenoble, they feature in the, the, the document that's just been published, it's sort of... Yeah. So p- perhaps they were particularly... Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. The, the, the part of the project is also, there are some live projects within it that there actually were, where there have been installations of uh, um, zero-energy equipment. So New West in Amsterdam, we did a, a strategy plan for that city, that part of the city, which is an extension to the city from the 1960s, quite low density, and we worked there to develop um, a long-term strategy for their decarbonisation. The project also has a range of um, interventions in neighbourhoods in Grenoble, which um, Grenoble's quite an interesting city because it's, um, it's very autonomous in France, so it has a chance to make a real big change quite quickly compared to a lot of cities. But it also suffers from a lot of pollution, so they're very mindful of their air quality, and and that's really driven their schemes. I know certainly Amsterdam has a reputation for being very green anyway, you know, so they're they're obviously quite conscious of the need to transform into a sustainable city. Did you find it easy to work with them? Were there obstacles? Yeah, well, I think, 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 you know, there's over the last five years or so there's been an amazing change in people's attitudes to the sustainable city people really want to change the problem is the complexity of the solution hasn't changed it's very very difficult to to 
imagine a rapid descent of carbon. Even somewhere like Amsterdam that's promised to be carbon neutral by 2035 is having difficulty with the first stages of that. You know, the, the technologies are, are there, but the, the amount of investment that's needed is absolutely huge. And it would be an infrastructural problem, this main obstacle? Or? Yeah, I, I suppose urbanism is, is like the concretization of ritual, you know, and so we have a lot of rituals in our lifestyles, and they're embedded, and, and the problem is we've embedded a, a lifestyle that involves the car, involves you know, energy use that, that we can no longer afford. And to change that means a change of not just lifestyles, but also the urban structures that engender those lifestyles. So it's a complex problem, really. And the amount of investment of uh, equipment that's needed to change things, for example, in, in Amsterdam we realised we needed to, for th 20 years, put eight hectares of photovoltaics on roofs every year, for example. Okay, that's a, that's quite a lot. <laughs> uh, and as I said, you you've worked in Belfast as well. You uh, did some initial work at any rate yeah. in, in Belfast. Give us an idea yeah. of how that went. Well, yeah, the, the the inaugural roadshow project was actually in Colin Glen in um, West Belfast, and it was really interesting being there because obviously, since the troubles, there was a, there's been a lot of um, urbanism put on the outskirts of towns, and and a lot of it was built with ideas n not really conducive to um, long-term sustainability. And most of these estates are low density, they rely on the car a lot, they're quite isolated, they, they're often monocultural in the sense that they only have housing in them. And actually trying to turn those around is, has some real difficulties. But it also has real possibilities because within those neighbourhoods there's lots of space and that gives you a chance to, to grow crops to put energy systems to build new houses and create new communities and connect things in different sorts of ways so it's it's quite an exciting piece of territory to work in and do you think the lessons you could learn from the colin Glen experience you could replicate around belfast or the greater belfast area yeah i, I, I think so you know when, when you when you look at you know one thing we do is we 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 start when we turn up in the neighbourhoods by visualising the carbon footprint of the neighbourhood. And generally, in most places around Europe, the split of the, the carbon usage has been about the same, that about 30% of the carbon is used to, for mobility, about 60% for heating, cooling and electrifying the buildings, and then 10% for producing water and removing waste. So actually... What you realise when you when you start to look at that that actually big changes can be made quite easily by changing the method of mobility, by retrofitting the houses with energy, then start producing energy. So actually, a lot of the things we've done all around Europe have, have although they've been very particular to the place, actually have common themes to them. I guess all that the idea of retrofitting and so forth. I mean, obviously that's going to tie in with. Uh, clean energy, new forms of clean energy, maybe community-owned solar panels, wind turbines, and so there, there could be points of contact between the CitiZen, what CitiZen was trying to do, and other projects that are already up and running. I mean, Yeah, yeah, I, th I, think, that, I think that's right. I, I think finding ways of um, producing things renewably is going to be the most important of those things. 
I think one thing about Citizen is is it's been really good at uh, incorporating um, sort of me- lessons from other parts of um, the university. Obviously, we have lots of projects in the university on renewable energy. We have problem projects on retrofitting individual houses. What Citizen tries to do is produce a package uh, of of um, mainly. Um, Moves that can be made in in sequence or in parallel that can that can make a, a transformation over time. So what we do is we we get the community to envisage a new future, a far future where which is a benign future that has zero carbon in it. And what we do is then we we unpack a pathway to from that point back to now, and then we work on the moves that can, that need to be made at each stage in that development to, to change things. And, and what we like to do is, is we, we start off with this working out the carbon footprint of the neighbourhood. And what we do is we, we, we then represent that as a forest of the size that's needed to sequester that carbon. And so that will often be 20 or 30 times bigger than the actual neighbourhood. And then what we do is we look at all the moves we make and we shrink the forest as we save as we save carbon until hopefully we get down for the forest to be small enough to be hidden inside the neighbourhood. That's really the idea. So the, car, so the carbon becomes sequestered within the neighbourhood. That's a really nice way to visualise it, actually. Yeah, the, the idea of the carbon footprint being much bigger than the geographical footprint. Yeah. Um, on, and when it's bad, <laughs> when it's yeah. not working, you know, obviously that means that that gives you a goal to work towards? Yeah, for, for example, that was really interesting. In, in, when we were in Nicosia, um, we did a project on the, on, in the north of the city and in the south of the city, a joint double workshop across the, the green line divide. And it was really interesting. We, we found that basically to sequester the carbon of Nicosia, you needed 21 forests the same size as the city. So, and actually, we, which, which is roughly 20 times more forests than they have at present. <laughs> on the island, so you can see that the scale of the problem is quite quite extreme in places like that. But it was really good because actually bringing together city governance from either side of the the border to see the size of the problem that they actually shared was really empowering for them because they realised they need to work together to change the situation. And actually, the space of the in that project, the space that the green line occupies then absorbed all the new infrastructures in the no-man's land to, to heal the city and connect it, but also provide all the, all the storage and all the energy production that the city needed. So it's a really interesting project. So not only is it about uh, sustainability in, in environmental terms, it's also in terms of social terms, in particular in a post-conflict kind of scenario, which of course, again, would translate nicely to where we are at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, I suppose because, you know, it, it's, it's a holistic idea of sustainability, really, that, that matters there. That, yeah, it's, it's environmental sustainability. It's also social sustainability and political sustainability because, actually, these things are going to be the biggest drivers of change, you know, in, in the next few years. But also econo- economics-wise, because at the moment, most neighbourhoods, if you think of that carbon, everything we buy is related to that carbon thing. So you look at all, all the energy that's put into that system, that's money leaving the neighbourhood and going to Saudi Arabia 
or Qatar or somewhere. And actually, if that stayed in the neighbourhood, it'd make the neighbourhood incredibly wealthy. So economic sustainability is really important. And, and I always say, people always ask me, how, how much will it cost to do this? And I always just say, how much does it cost not to do it? question yes um, so I guess two final questions uh, first would be um, in terms of if you were to give advice now we've just got our assembly back up and running the executive's been formed the idea of sustainability and climate change is built into the, the document that got us here if you had any advice to give our new bank of politicians up there yeah. what would it be I, I think in, invest in green businesses you know that there are in Northern Ireland, 135,000 homes which are substandard from an energy point of view. That is a massive business opportunity. You know, putting photovoltaics on every roof in Northern Ireland is an amazing business opportunity. You know, re-engaging with cycling around the city and changing the ways of mobility is an amazing business opportunity. And we've got to start seeing sustainability not as what you have to lose, but what you gain from it. And the economic gains are the biggest gains of all. Good. And final question, now that CitySan is coming to an end, what comes next? What Have you other projects that you're... Yeah, we've got another amazing project called MNEX, which is funded by the, the Belmont Forum that's looking at the food, energy, water nexus in neighbourhoods now. We're, we're taking the ideas from CitySan of energy and now we're putting food and water into those and also um, climate change scenarios into it to, to make a more sophisticated future model for neighbourhoods. Excellent. Professor Keith, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sam McCluskey, um, the Director for the Centre for Advanced Sustainable Energy, which is otherwise known as CASE. We're one of Invest and I funded competence centres, funded about seven years ago now under the Competence Centre programme, which is basically established through a government science advisory panel review of the need to support industry and academia interactions on the academic front. So we're hosted by Queen's. We're one of the Queen's Social Charter Signature Projects, and we conduct industry-led collaborative research in the sustainable energy sector. But uh, whilst we're hosted at Queen's, we fund research that happens at Queen's, Ulster and AFPI, and sometimes a combination of, of all three. But our remit is, is to be industry-led, so our focus and our strategy and our main aims are to support the Northern Ireland economy, so to boost skills, to increase capacity, enhance capability, and I suppose to act as a broker between industry and, and university, or I like to call it a bridge between industry and, and university. So whilst we're based within the walls of academia and we fund academics to conduct research on behalf of industry partners, um, I suppose my role as, as centre director is to, I suppose, walk down the line between academia and, and, and industry, and I, I don't have an academic background, I have more of an industrial background. So, so quite, I mean, quite often, I suppose, we are managing relationships between groups of companies and sometimes groups of, of academics, but f I suppose for the overall benefit of, of that consortium, we're based within the School of Chemistry and Chemical Engineering, um, but, but our reach is as far and wide as it needs to be to support industry needs, so from policy and social economics right through to biology, chemistry, mechanical, etc., etc. So there's a, there's a broad remit. You could, if you could maybe tell us some of the, the sort of technologies that, that the centre looks at then. I mean, obviously, it's, uh, 
it's definitely not just a ivory tower pursuit. It's, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is something I'm very much engaged in the, in the real world. And I guess, uh, obviously, climate change and environmental considerations are, are to every, the fore of everybody's mind at the minute. So what sort of technologies are, is the centre looking at? Yeah, that, that, that's important, I suppose. It's important, I suppose, to, when, when we're looking at technologies, to also note that we're not necessarily just focused on a technological advancement, that sometimes we're looking at a new service or a new model or a verification of something to support industry to take it one step forward. Our role really is to support those companies to take their idea a little bit further, but we're, we aren't really able to support that late-stage commercialisation. That's where a company should have enough confidence in the idea once they've been through the... the uh, the collaborative R&D with us to be able then to either invest in it themselves or to sell the idea to an investor. So, so yet the technology then going back to your, your question, um, we look at three main areas. So the, the first area would be on bioenergy. So that's very much uh, looking at a process. I always, I suppose, for, for those that are, are new to the to the bioenergy field, is is compare it to to. <laughs> To have the mechanisms of a cow, essentially a cow will eat grass, convert that uh, in its stomach to a gas, and essentially that's what an anaerobic digestion plant will do, but on a much larger scale. So, so biogas or bioenergy in, in gas form is created by an anaerobic digestion or an AD plant, which is consuming grass, other energy crops, waste materials... Um, at, at slurries, byproducts of the actual cows themselves. And yes, slurries. <laughs> yeah, certainly those those things. Uh, digesting them, uh, and there are, there are a, a cocktail of bugs that will will support that, and then creating gas as an output. And one of the things that we're looking at is that the creation of biogas was always, or has recently been, up until uh, very recently, supported by what's called ROCs, NIROCs, the Northern Ireland Renewable Obligation Certificates, which are incentives to support renewable energy generation in, in Northern Ireland specifically. But ROCs, the ROCs regime has, has ended, and the gas that was supported by, by ROCs would have been used to... Uh, to, to create electricity, but what the research that we're looking at is in the absence of an incentive, is generation of electricity by gas the most efficient process? So we're looking at projects with groups of companies or AD operators say, okay, they've got a gas, what's the best use for that biogas now? Yes, electricity generation, but perhaps looking at can it be cleaned and injected into a gas grid? Can it be created into a transport fuel? Can it be used for fuels elsewhere? So there's a whole range of different activity where we're looking at adding value to that AD process. And we're even looking at things like another byproduct from AD is digestate. It could potentially be spread on land, but with some land restrictions. These are the sort of the solids. The solids. After, yeah. After 
the, yeah. Converted everything else into the gas then. Exactly. Not very pleasant. So there's a liquid fraction and there's a solid fraction, and the solid fraction is, is the digestate. And so we've looked at can that be pelletized? Can we add dusts or sawdust or, or a range of different things to that? Can it then be burned as a fuel? Can it be used as a slow release fertilizer? So a whole range of, of different elements. We've also had projects where we're looking at different feedstocks, different uh, optimum um, activities for not just anaerobic digestion, but other types of biomass. So we've worked on a project where we're looking at things like um, dredgings from ponds. So can bulrushes and other types of dredges uh, be used for um, as, as part of an energy crop or an energy mix, it's a waste material, um, you know, waste sawdust, offcuts from uh, sawmills, a whole range of, of different things. So that's looking at this, the solid bio uh, bioenergy element. So It's like a sort of a circular economy kind of a model, you know, circular. nothing that's waste unless you waste it. Exactly. <laughs> you can always use it as a fuel for some the next stage of another process. Yeah. And that's a very important thing. Circular economy is, what was it, well, has become a, a, a buzzword but is a, is a very important concept in that you're solving two problems. You're solving an energy issue, but you're also solving a what to do with the waste issue. Um, so you're looking at a, a full sort of life cycle, essentially, of, of, of things. So, so bioenergy is, is, uh, is one of the particular areas. Um, we've done quite a lot of chemistry and chemical analysis, catalysis, photocatalysis around, uh, around the bioenergy uh, side of things. Um, and I suppose that's led to a whole range of, of different potential potential outcomes. Testing vehicles, for example, using uh, dual fuel, looking at you know, the optimum use of of a, a biogas for for a fueling system on a uh, a milk a, a milk round vehicle, so a, a vehicle that collects milk. And we did a little test run for a couple of weeks in a Newton Stewart, looking at a, a vehicle that's used to collect milk in, in farms in Newton Stewart. So we're looking at the emissions as well as the efficiencies and the costs of, of that kind of dual fuel experiment. So, so those are some examples on, on the bioenergy side. That's very much led by the School of Chemistry and Chemical Engineering here at, here at Queen's. Um, aside from bioenergy then, we have two other main areas of focus. Um, one area is on the energy systems. So we're looking at renewable energy in Northern Ireland, we're looking at renewable energy penetration of just about 45% onto the grid at the moment. So smashed a target this year of 40%. By 2020. By 2020. to be the target. Yeah. So the Strategic Energy Framework had that target to 2020. And to be perfectly honest, when it was issued um, in 2010, I think... Uh, lots of people were sceptical that the ability of the Northern Ireland grid to support 40% renewables was just not... probably very ambitious. Yeah, and wasn't really even considered in the original framework. It was just something that, well, there's a target, but there's no real acknowledgement of how the grid would, would cope. And you, you think the Northern Ireland grid is based on three traditional power stations. And over the, the period of, of the framework had actually supported... 22,000 power stations and people may say I'm over exaggerating in that somebody's solar panels on installation on their roof would be classed as a power station but essentially it has an impact on on the grid and the the demand that uh, that, 
NIE has to has to manage ultimately. So that's a huge feat. Um, but we've got to get to way beyond forty percent now, and that grid integration element, which was done, I wouldn't say relatively easily, but without significant expenditure, because essentially there isn't the allowable expenditure on the grid because it'll have a significant impact on fuel poverty or there hadn't been up to now. We have to get beyond that to zero carbon by 2050, and that involves decarbonising the rest of, of the electricity grid and decarbonising heat and decarbonising transport. So there's a whole range of, of different things we have to do. So that energy systems piece is looking at, you talk about circular economy, the holistic energy system, the balance, heat and transport and power, how the energy vectors might work together, how heat might help to balance electricity and vice versa. And it's a little bit of an unknown entity because we don't know the speed that electrification of heat and transport are going to happen. Our other sector is a focus on marine renewable energy, which is important in a Northern Ireland context because we have potentially 200 megawatts of untapped resource off, off the North Coast. It's sitting there with well, one of the two sites with a, with a licence, but certainly almost ready to go, except for the fact that there is a little bit of a technology delay in that the tidal energy technology is not quite at commercial capacity just yet and some of the research work that needs to be done is to make it viable and stand up against some other of the offshore energy technologies such as offshore wind. So we're looking at helping to support the development which Northern Ireland has a quite a unique tidal energy resource so we're looking to support the development of, of tidal energy which will help to bolster the available capacity in in Northern Ireland as we move towards decarbonisation. So we funded about a million pounds worth of of tidal energy research led by Professor Trevor Whitaker here at Queen's and using the facilities at the Marine Lab in Portaferry and also the amazing resource that we have at Strangford Lock. So we've tested some tidal devices. In fact, uh, marine renewable energy research has had some global firsts in that we've tested some tidal devices at a scale in tandem that hasn't ever been done anywhere before and in conditions in Strangford which are ideal for testing uh, a number of companies have tested their companies from from uh, Germany English companies as well as um, Northern Irish companies so it's it's a fantastic opportunity to I suppose bolster not only the supply chain in Northern Ireland to help them to ready themselves for that 200 megawatts if we can get it, it built eventually at, at, you know, and, and to support the UK development of tidal energy because the UK as a whole is a global leader in the in the sector. So that's, I suppose, marine renewables fairly unique to certain regions within the UK and we just happen to be ideally placed to be able to, to support that. And where um, wind power is now, tidal power could be given the right support in a few years, perhaps. I mean, you know, wind power, the prices came down and down and starting to spread. Tidal power could be the same thing. Ultimately, the, I, there's no real reason why it couldn't be. I think what um, a, a message I was getting yesterday from the Marine Energy Council was that the 2020s was very much about looking... Uh, uh, continuing to support 
testing and commercialization of arrays. So devices are already in singular format, proven technology. Uh, they work. There's a number of grid-connected um, small arrays, so up to sort of five megawatts. Um, but we need to look at the 2030s about much bigger projects and it'll only be once the bigger projects start to become established oh, I mean you think there's 200 megawatts on the north coast um, and it, but that the costs will start to come down and therefore they will become more comparable with with offshore wind and you're looking at economies of scale essentially you know you're looking at great big vessels that are needed in rough seas with high wave climates and and very strong tides in order for or tidal currents sorry tidal streams in order for this to work uh, and yet so the difficulties of actually putting these things onto the seabed because they needed to be in those difficult environments but if you're starting to do that at scale and you've got the right vessels and you're putting more than one in at any one time and the O&M or the operations and maintenance for those things is at scale, then you're starting to bring down bring down the costs. I think one thing that needs to be done, wave, wave energy is a little bit behind tidal. One thing that needs to be done in both wave and tidal is for a particular type of technology to become the leader as such because there are a whole range of different uh, technologies from um, you know, underwater kites to um, essentially wind turbines that are underneath the underneath the, the, the water so there's the, the, the device type isn't standard yet and there's some work still to be done on, on that kind of thing. And those are the sort of things that our researchers and, and so forth will be looking at. Yes. That's great. Yes. Sam McCluskey, thank you very much. <laughs> Find out more about the Social Charter at our website, qub.ac.uk slash social hyphen charter.